Hello, and welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. Today, we're talking to professional photographer Anita Corbin. Anita became known in the 1980s with her Visible Girls series, featuring portraits of young women in a variety of subcultures. And she went on to become a highly regarded reportage photographer for publications including The Times, The Observer and Elle magazine. She currently has a show on at the Wardlaw Museum called First Women UK, which celebrates Britain's modern female pioneers. Today we're joined by Anita Corbin. Anita, thank you so much for, for being with us on the Curiosity Conversation. It's great to have you. My pleasure. And I guess the first question that our listeners will be interested to, to hear the answer to is a little bit about how the project First Women came to be. We'd love to know more. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me on to talk about uh, my First Women project. And um, it was uh, very much a part of my development, if you like, as a photographer. Um, I've been a photographer all my life since I was seven, really. And I've been um, working since I was working professionally since I was about 22. And I'd worked and had a really interesting career, um, worked with the Sunday Times magazine and the Observer magazine and travelled a lot with writers and sometimes without writers, but all over the world, um, photographing people, really ordinary people, sometimes a few celebrities, but mainly ordinary stories about ordinary people doing extraordinary things and uh, being featured in you know big publications like that, read by millions. Um, is is a, is very thrilling, but obviously you have to be pretty much at the top of your game the whole time. And um, then my husband and I were working together on more commercial work in the sort of 90s. We had um, our twins came along in the mid 90s, and we decided we needed to do less work but earn more money. Uh, so we worked in the commercial world in the sort of design with designers, top designers, top advertising agencies. And that was very interesting and, and very creative as well. But um, I got towards my uh, 50th birthday and my children were in the, were 14 and so starting to go out and about a bit more, you know, didn't need to be at home so much, um, starting to uh, fly the nest in a way, uh, more, you know, out and about with their friends and mates. And I started to think about my career, myself, if you like, my, my pathway and uh, the biggest question really that came out when I was working with a, with a group of women at the time called um, the B group, and it was about uh, helping each other to sort of find a way in, in each individual path that we were at, at all different walks of life, uh, from a color therapist to a, a chef, you know, it was a really wide ranging group of women. And we were, we met once a month and we just talked about our, hopes and dreams and aspirations and we were very much a non-judgmental group but tried to encourage and help each other in a way to, to go forwards and I had this idea overnight because I kept hearing about first women on the news and in reading in newspapers and I was kind of asking myself well how are we going to remember these first women you know how are we going to have a body of knowledge around these women and especially because there wasn't even a woman's the statue of a woman in Parliament Square at that time. So I was kind of a bit, you know, I got quite sort of 
uh, uppity, if you like. And I thought, right, we need to, I need to do this. I'm a woman's photographer. I've worked in the UK all my life. And I think that there is a need for this collection of 100 portraits of first women. So I looked at the heads. It was 10 years before the centenary of women's right to vote. And that's what I hung my idea on in a way. And I decided that I would create 100 portraits of 100 first women across the whole of the UK to celebrate 100 years of women's right to vote. And to do that in a way that was uplifting and celebratory, uh, to look at how far women had come in those 100 years through the way that they were working and um, playing sport or adventuring or their occupations, the impact that we had had on society, if you like, over those hundred years. So that was really how it came about, to give myself the best assignment in the world. And then I had to work out how was I going to do it, because it's very good having an idea, and it was a good idea, and I knew that. Um, but I also was very protective of it to start with because having worked in the media all my life, I know that uh, ideas are our currency and you have to be you know, very protective of them in the infancy. And really, it was about leaving a legacy for, for, of, of my work behind that would be a body of work that I would be remembered for when I'm long gone. So it's that kind of... Um, moment in your life I think when you you look ahead and you think right what am I going to be you know what am I going to be remembered for uh, apart from you know lovely children obviously going down through the generations and that's the most creative thing I've ever done is having children. You said you know you had this great idea you you weren't sure how you were actually going to do it how how did you do it you've got some you've got some 100 fantastic women uh, in this series some of them really really well known some of them perhaps a little less well known but all of them inspirational how did you go about getting these photographs? Well I started off I thought right I'm going to go for the top uh, I'm, I'm going to approach Margaret Thatcher whether, whether you know lover or hater she was the first woman prime minister of the UK and so I started really with the most difficult um, assignment if you like and I tried uh, seven different ways to get to a message to Margaret Thatcher an inv invitation so I wrote handwritten well typed and then hand signed letters uh, initially to the women uh, to all of the women actually I sent a letter through the post because uh, obviously that's sometimes it's quite hard to get the right emails and the right contacts and I tried seven different routes to, to Margaret Thatcher and I, I never ever got one reply which was pretty demoralizing to start with um, but I kind of came to the conclusion that maybe she wasn't didn't want to be remembered as a woman prime minister she wanted to be remembered as a, a prime minister and in some ways, that was a really good, although quite hard lesson to learn and felt very rejected to start with, because I had to look at life and look at the approach differently. And, and really sort of instead of writing uh, a scattergun of letters, I had to I decided that I wanted to all of the women that I would approach and get permission from to photograph, I would have in the collection. It wasn't a question of taking lots of photographs and then deciding who was going to be in it later, because obviously that would have been quite a difficult relationship to have with, with some of the first women to, to tell them that, you know, sorry, you're not in the collection. So <laughs> I didn't want to um, do that. I wanted to have very focused 
uh, approach to capturing each of the first. And it was also very much about a diverse collection. So I could have got a hundred first women in sport quite quite quickly and quite easily if I wanted to, because obviously that's a very definite first. But I wanted again to do as much of the UK cross as much of the UK as possible, cover as many walks of life as possible, as many ages and as many races as possible, and also as many different photographic backgrounds, if you like, so that it was an interesting uplifting and inspiring visual experience and not a dry social document. I was very much aware that it wasn't uh, going to be wordy. There were no interviews. Um, I didn't need to know every last detail of the woman. So it was much more about um, making the connection, which was sometimes quite difficult, especially if there was a a lot of red tape and protocol um, and layers of press officers and uh, PR and PAs and, you know, various sort of gatekeepers that I had to try and persuade my way through. But each each uh, woman that I approached, once they got the message, about 90% said yes straight away without really knowing what they were getting themselves into. So I was very much boosted along once I'd got a few, you know, agreed um, dates, if you like, uh, with the women, then I would then feel confident to approach somebody that they may have suggested or someone else that had come up through the news and I was able to find some contact. I mean, it was a lot of detective work went on Um, and tenacity. You know, it took me four years to get a list of first women from the armed forces. You know, I had to keep chasing and of course they move around every two years. So but by the end of the project, towards 2016, I, I actually had a, a list from the MOD of about 15 firsts. So they had been working away behind the scenes, but but I didn't know that until they produced this list of 15, of which I have eight from. And I was very pleased to be able to include at least 8% of the portraits uh, of women from the armed forces, because that was you know, a very important part of the of the collection tenacity you know persuasion and also really t- respecting their their time when was it going to be right for them that was the other thing it wasn't i had no deadline i didn't have an art director or picture editor that i was working for and it that gave me a lot of freedom in terms of being um, at their convenience uh, when they felt right to be photographed so that made a big difference and a lot of the women said actually that Having uh, the two-hour slot, which is what I asked for, because I wanted two hours with each woman, made them put that in their diary. And not that they were in front of the camera for two hours, but a lot of them said that it was really like one of the only times that they sat down and thought about what they'd achieved in in a kind of wider, more universal way, I guess, as part of a big collection of women, first women. And that was a lovely... uh, Thing to hear from them that you know they they felt that that was the time out for them too and I think that really helped with the relationship building and the level of trust and understanding that we developed in those two-hour sittings. Thank you I, and I think one of the things that I'm really curious to know about um, is is kind of what what that 
that two hours was like and and you know how how the photographs were were composed was that a real sort of two-way street between yourself and the sitter you know was that something you worked on together I'd love to know more about that process but when you're photographing people you you'll become an observer in their environment and I, I often spend the first sort of half an hour um you know we might have a cup of tea have a little chat sort of trying to just feel relaxed then get them to relax in in my presence but also then I like to um I don't like to sort of take up their time unnecessarily so I then ask them if I can look around the location so sometimes it's obvious you know if you're in a in, in um I don't know an industrial environment you know there's it's going to be the portrait's going to be taken somewhere in the industrial environment and so I would spend time wrecking the environment looking to find what what I think will work best as a location and a backdrop and how the woman would interact with that background in a way so that it gives more information about her first and then I would set up it's all lit everything is lit I carry all my own gear I don't have assistance um, in this project, it was very much one-to-one, just her, the first woman, and me, if possible. Um, sometimes there was an assistant around on her side that I could then maybe give a job to to kind of distract them because the last thing you want is another person talking to the sitter. You know, I would be, I would want them to be really concentrating on on the camera and on me. Um, through the camera if you like so there's a very intimate setting um, even in a you know a power station or or even in the house of lords where you know there's a lot of protocol to get through I would still try and create a sort of bubble where there would be just me and her and we'd be talking and, and getting to know each other and by the time she would come into the the setting if you like I would be ready photographically ready so that she didn't need feel that she was wasting her time, if you like. And I would then create a relaxed environment and, and try and find the, the, the moment and the essence of her character and her energy um, through conversation, through body language, um, sometimes just watching and observing people. You can see where their mannerisms really are become individual. And then I might say all that, you know, just, just hold that a second that looks great or you know it's very much um, a two-way conversation and a collaboration and and in terms of what they're wearing and what what they appear you know whether they have the uniform on if it's a uniform situation then um, that makes it pretty straightforward because they're going to be wearing the uniform and you, you just make sure that you know you're not showing the uniform off in any way that isn't right and really try and create a you know a friendly warm atmosphere um, where you're having an, an equal exchange I'd say the idea is that it's an equal exchange and trust is very much involved on both parts I'm they you know the first women needed to sort of trust me to to create an image that was authentic and truthful but also you know technically good and I needed to sort of trust them to reveal a little bit more about themselves than perhaps they'd revealed before in, in a press or a media shot or press shot because it, it was definitely not a press shot you know it was very much more in depth um, a personal portrait of an ordinary woman doing extraordinary things and um, I guess that's always the excitement of photography for me because every situation is different 
and every location you go to is different. And of course, every individual is totally different. So it's very, very exciting. And you have to trust in your intuition a lot that you're doing the right thing and you're creating the right um, energy between you. You were, that that's really interesting to know. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, you wanted this to be a very uplifting series, and some of the portraits are really uplifting. I, I think of um, Dame Steve Shirley, who's just, um, if our listeners haven't seen it, they should should go online and have a look. She just looks full of the joys of life. Baroness Betty Boothroyd, um, again, just very smiley, just exudes uh, warmth and happiness. Um, some of the other women, much more serious. How did the kind of character of the individual women come across was that did they kind of decide how they wanted to present themselves in that way or was that was that you that that, that did that well I think it's it's a, it's a two-way street isn't it I mean you, you know I create an, a situation where hopefully they feel relaxed enough to to be themselves and um and then I capture that you know I can see the observe the the, the when I feel that the self is truly revealed is through the editing process really because I mean I take you know two or three setups on each woman and probably a hundred shots on each setup so you know that's a lot of pictures so it, it, it you know it's also about making them feel relaxed in front of the camera so once you've got into the swing of taking the pictures often you'll see that they'll sit, they'll, the shoulders will relax or, you know, they'll feel, they'll sort of rest into it a bit more and, and feel more like, oh, yes, yeah, she knows what she's doing, you know, hopefully. <laughs> so, um, it's yeah, it's a very much a two-way street. I, I think, you know, sometimes with positioning of hands, because I really like to get hands into the shot, um, sometimes I'll make sure that there's not a, a sort of strange cut off of the hand, you know, which can be a little bit unnerving. So in that respect, I would maybe say, oh, could you just, you know, sit with your arm up like that or it'd be lovely to see your hands or you know something just to because you don't want people to feel awkward in in any kind of posture it's about seeing the body body language has to work for for them but also for what i'm trying to say so um, for instance the shot of beth french who's the long distance endurance swimmer uh, she's actually um standing in the in the sea and she's got her head turned towards the sun um, so that represents to me, you know, this sort of ultimate power of the female body being able to swim for 20 hours in one, you know, in one stretch. Uh, I, I had a very kind of clear idea of how I wanted to, her to look. Um, but obviously, she's still best French, you know, she's, it's her in her, in her physicality and, and that feeling of her almost like a, a classical statue coming out of the sea was, was my premonition if you like and, and quite often especially like with Dame Stephanie Shirley I had a really clear idea of, of what I wanted how I wanted to uh, photograph her um, and all of the portraits as you can see are done in a vertical portrait format that was one of the little sort of tests or rules that I set myself that they all had to be in the same portrait format that they were going to be in color I love color photography that's my medium and also you know, I very much wanted to be driven by what I found rather than have a set thing, a set sort of idea of the of the format and the style, if you like, before I arrived. And so Dame Stephanie Shirley, because of the story, her story, backstory is incredible. You know, she was a kinder transport child, came to the UK from running from the Nazi, Nazi Germany. Um, and she's made this huge empire, uh, you know, in the UK. Uh, actually 
built an empire for women to work in um, initially um, in IT, in the IT world. And now she's in her late 80s, I believe, and she's still very vibrant and a philanthropist. And so all those things are going on in your head. And I'd had this imagination, uh, an image in my imagination of her coming through this avenue of trees. Um, so I knew there was an avenue of trees at the location that I took the picture at because we met in her um, the school, Friars Court, which is an, a school for autism, which she's heavily involved in and supports. And I knew there was this tree avenue and I thought, great, you know, we can do the portrait there. But when I got there, it was raining. It was really dark. There were no leaves on the trees and it looked really sinister. So I didn't I decided, you know, on the spot. Oh, no, I can't take that picture there because it will create the wrong message. I wanted to create this message of her, you know, coming into the freedom and and walking to freedom if you like so i had quickly sort of turned around and saw this opportunity in another part of the grounds where there was that sort of paving step stepping stone pathway and the daffodils in the background and of course it had just rained so the floor the, the saving paving stones were really glistening and shiny and she she was just up for it she was just like I wanted to capture that exuberant empowerment that she had created in the UK coming from such a, you know, really traumatic um, childhood in, in, in Germany. So, yeah, so you have to think on your feet. You have to be very intuitive. And also you have to trust that intuition and not question yourself or doubt your uh, technique, if you like. You know, you shouldn't be worrying too much about uh, I mean, you have to be sure that you know you've got the exposure right and the, the, the light's in the right place and it's not causing nasty shadows and reflections on the back wall or whatever. But you have to then really be free of that worry because that can hinder the relationship to create that uplifting mood, if you like. And she brought a whole series of different tops so I could choose <laughs> which colour. And of course, yellow was just a brilliant colour to photograph. I think what's really interesting when you're, you know, you're, you're, you're telling us more about how, how that process sort of evolved. I also wonder, you know, which, which sort of photographic traditions have inspired these portraits? I think, you know, you, you were saying there that you, you set yourself sort of certain, certain limitations and frameworks with which to work in um, colour, obviously portrait format and that sort of thing. But yeah, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about about that side of things i come from a you know a long line of editorial portraiture uh, photographers from working with the sunday times and the observer so i guess i cut my teeth going into unpredictable situations in people's homes and people's workplaces out in the field and um i guess probably you know looking at those editorial portraits of the early 70s 80s 90s Annie Leibovitz, you know, I, I really think her work is outstanding. I guess portraiture itself, it's a very personal style, isn't it? Because it's about the relationship between the photographer and the subject through the camera lens. Um, I hope that I've got my own style. Uh, where has it come from? Um, I did start taking pictures when I was very, very young, um, nine, like seven years old had an Instamatic camera, was always taking pictures of my friends at school. So ordinary things going on, really, and, you know, always framing the ordinary. Um, and, of course, those now have a fantastic historical, historical, I should say, 
context in my life because I can look back and see, well, that was a school trip to France, you know, when I was eight. And those are our friends who were, you know, six-year-olds from twins from Japan. And I wonder what they're doing now. And my best mate from school who I still know. So photography is a really, really powerful tool uh, to connect with the past and with the future and obviously with the present. So in terms of photographic tradition, Ah, it's a tricky old one. I mean, I love Irving Penn. I love Avden, Richard Avden. But in ultimately, it's about the individual behind the camera that's creating the portrait, and the relationship with the sitter is is, got, you know, it's got to be uh, sort of respected. Really, I think respect is a word that I, I would like to hope people see through the pictures is that I respect the subjects and the subjects respect me, and we create this mutual. Uh, gift if you like of the portrait that then the audience can can delve into and you know connect with in many ways that the the more ways the merrier in a way because it's you know I'm not dictating how people see the pictures or how people respond to the pictures that's that's my job as a photographer is to keep my ego out of it actually and um, allow the subjects to communicate through the lens to the audience you, you've taken all these fantastic photographs of really successful women. You yourself are uh, incredibly successful. Um, I'm really interested to to know what your approach to failure is now. You mentioned you mentioned earlier how um, approaching Margaret Thatcher didn't work, and maybe you wouldn't call it a failure, but perhaps a setback. Um, I'm sure you've heard all sorts of stories from 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 some of the some of the people you photographed. What what do you think? Um, a healthy response to failure is, and um, how do you approach failure now? Uh, well, I think as a freelance photographer all my life, you know you, that's something you have to you have to live with in a way that you're you can't really get bogged down in failure at all because it, it, there's always another angle to look for. So when you're taking a, a series of portraits, you know not each one, not everyone is going to work, not every angle is going to work, and that's part of the editing processes to you know work your way through the angles to 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 feel it in a sense that you, you know you feel what works best and, and when you get them home and you're editing them then they speak to you but in terms of failure i think fear of failure is is more worrying I, I, that worries me more that you know the fear of failure to stop you from from even trying is is much more debilitating than than to go out and to try and to fail and I guess we, you know, looking at young babies when they start learning to walk. I mean, they they don't just get up and walk. You know, they fall over a few times. They they maybe look at their peers and see what they're doing. Our twins definitely did that. Our daughter was the one that sort of trailblazed the walking, and then our son looked at her and thought, "No, I'm not going to do that yet. I'm going to watch and see what she does first. And you know, eventually he he got up and walked fairly quickly, but had a few falls as well. Um, yeah, I think it's about that thing of, you know, you, you, you've got to, you can't see failure as the final finish. You have to see it as a part of the process. And as a photographer, you know, you're always looking for different angles and you, you feel it when it's right, definitely. But you're not going to find that necessarily the first five minutes that you walk into a room. And being conscious of that feeling of, of not not yet finding the right thing or not yet, you know, passing through the right position or or the right or the right result even um is part of the whole way that i live that you know you're sort of 
it's not like you're dissatisfied with what you've done, but you know that there's another thing around the corner and you'll keep looking and you'll keep trying. And once you find it, it's about being tuned into thinking, uh, this is it, you know, this is what I'm going to, being decisive as well. I think being decisive is really important um, and tr- going for something and, and seeing if it works. And if it doesn't work, you know, at least you've gone for it and decided that, no, that wasn't the right thing. And at, at that point, you know, there will be a something, a spotlight will have been shone on what, what was the right path. So uh, looking at the first women, so yes, I, I wasn't uh, possible to make contact with Thatcher and, and it, it could have, you know, it did knock the wind out of my sails for a little while, but then I had this fantastic response back from Baroness Boothroyd and she literally wrote back a handwritten letter within a few days of receiving mine. And of course, that gave me this enormous boost and I kind of forgot about Thatcher at that point and thought, right, okay, so I'm not going to get a yes from everybody, although, as I say, it was 99%, 90% yes. But I I had enough energy to then go forward and it wasn't blocking me anymore. The energy was starting to roll and uh, starting to open up opportunities. And um, I guess belief, self-belief and a bit more self-confidence and, you know, not worrying about whether I was going to get enough. Well, I did worry at first, obviously, would I be able to do 100? You know, would I be able to find and get through to 100 in the first place in time for the, the 100 years? There was always that in the back of my mind uh, that kept me motivated. Um, but yeah, going back to the first woman that I photographed was Sarah Uten. And she was, um, well, the reason why I photographed her was because I, when I Googled first women, her name came up first on the google search and i thought well that's a really good place to start isn't it so i and she was in the middle of her challenge to row solo across the indian ocean at the time um and she was just about to set off and i thought well i won't ask her yet because i might put a jinx on it but i started watching or listening to her on she was on social media she was reporting every day how far she'd got and and, you know, it was fantastic. She was 24. She was in this six meter rowing boat with all of her food for four months, or 124 days she was at sea. And, um, but you know what? The first, she set off and she ended up going in a massive circle out from Fremantle, I think. So she was throwing from Australia to the Maldives. And she went in a massive circle because of the currents and the winds. And she ended up back in Australia after a week. Now, I thought, well, you know, that could be seen as failure, couldn't it? But no, she went back out there a week later, regrouped, you know, got some more information about the weather, needed more sort of in-depth guidance, I guess, on the weather and and the currents. And and then she set off again. And I mean, I just felt, well, if she can do that, you know, across the Indian Ocean on her own, age 24, then I surely can go around the UK on my own um, and stay in some, you know, dodgy B&Bs and do 100,000 miles uh, around the UK to to cover every corner. So I think, you know, you just have to have that belief, self-belief, and maybe a little bit of foolhardery as well (laughs) and uh, go out there and go for it. Um, And there were challenges along the way. You know, there were were lots of times when um, I felt that, I hadn't got the access that I wanted and I had to keep keep on, keep on keeping on, you know, and, and I say four years to get the armed forces list and uh, seven years to get um, 
in front of Nicola Adams, which I was who of whom I was determined to meet and photograph. But she went through several changes of management and agents, and then she was training for the Olympics. So that was the patience. That was real, real patience on my part. And it was so worth it when I was actually in the GB gym in Sheffield um, photographing. And she came into, you know, the setup that I'd already got set up with the lighting and the, and the ring. And she came in and she was just so relaxed and so sort of um, cool about it all. And, and then she got straight into the ring after the shoot and started to um, train and her trainer, who was a, a woman trainer, said that I asked her, could I watch, you know, because it was in the lead up to the Olympics. So it was very, very, uh, um, you know, sacrosanct, the space. And there were other boxes there. And she said, yeah, you can, you know, take some pictures of her training. So that was a real bonus to be able to actually see the other side of, of Nicola in action. Fantastic role model for young women. So, yeah, it's, it's a it's a wonderful thing to have been in the presence of so many women and, and all of them have given me a takeaway as well, um, which, you know, many of them have had very, very tricky passages and difficult and often, you know, victimizations through their processes as well. But they are there and they are shining bright and they are rising above everything. And I just think, well, you know, that's what we have to do is on reflection, you know, of of this this last hundred years and the the milestone that you you celebrated through this this series, how, how do you think women's rights have have changed in this time? Well, definitely they have changed in this time, um, and since a hundred you know since the hundred years of of well 1918 to 2018 and and beyond. Um, I mean, my mother was a, a landscape architect in the 40, post-war. Um, she was working in the, the LCC at the time. She met my father. And once they got married, she wasn't allowed to work in the same office as him. So that has changed, thankfully. I don't think they can, uh, you know, they can't make you move departments anymore. Um, so things have definitely changed and improved. Um, you know, we can women now can have their own bank account, which if you look back is not that long ago when you had to have your father's signature on your bank account, 19... I think it's even in eight early 80s. Um, there are many things that have improved, and um, you know we have much more control over what happens to our bodies now, which is very important. But I do think there's there's a lot more needed to be done in terms of um, equality in the home. You know we have equality, but most of the home life is not yet equal, and that's partly to do with the way we look, society allows men to be too. You know, I think we have to, it's not just about having women's rights, but men have to have more rights in terms of being able to be fathers, to be staying at home, you know, to be softer in the society and to allow that equality at home. And um, like in Scandinavian countries where you have a lot more support for the family unit, no, you know, whatever kind of family, it doesn't have to be a nuclear family, any kind of family with children, in Scandinavia, they have much more support for the children, for the family unit until the children are seven. Um, you know, and I do feel in, in the UK that we've lost, and America obviously even more so, we've lost sight of that importance of the first early years of de child's development um, with, with, with the father and the mother available. Um, but I don't, I don't know how that will change in the, you know, in our, in our society at the moment, it's very much about you know achievement and success as you say isn't it 
But is there a slide back? I think there is a slide back. There is a slide back, and um, you know, I, I think we need more. We need more role models, strong, powerful role models for men and women, um, for children, girls and boys to see. You know, that aren't. It's so unbelievable that even you know today that that you know magazines and social media. You know, the sort of social sexual stereotypes are still so predictable and um unchanged and you know well, and obviously we've got much more now around gender gender neutrality which is brilliant but i don't know i i think that there is that in the 80s well 70s and 80s when i was sort of a young woman you know there was a lot more protesting there was a lot more marching there was a lot more uh activism around women's rights um i guess now it's more online so you don't see that so much. And of course, now we have all the changes in the law, which is going to make that much harder to do. I think it really is about making the, the it's great that the rights are there. You know, we've got the rights now to ride in the Grand National, you know, the Equal Opportunities Act. The um, that was in when I was 18, that came into force. So that was a great time to be 18. And, um, you know, those things that are there, but I still think in the home, you know, there's still a lot of equality that isn't there because of the way that society is structured. And um, I think that's something that we, you know, we could really learn from Scandinavia about that, and create a much more, a much less pressurized and stressful situation in the children, you know, for children at home and for working parents, because, you know, we, we are all now pretty much all both working. There's certainly a lot of, of inspiration in your in your photographs there to, to help us uh, have an enjoyable and, and hopefully happy, happy time. Um, fantastic. Our our time, I'm afraid, has run out. It's been a, a fantastic conversation, Anita. Thank you so much for, for giving us your time. And of course, if anyone wants to come and see the first women, they can come on down to the Wardlaw Museum and the Laidlaw Music Centre in St Andrews. If you usually enjoy this podcast, Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcast platforms. Join us next year for another exciting season of the Curiosity Conversation. Merry Christmas. The Curiosity Conversation is brought to you by the museums of the University of St Andrews.